0: My name is Nate. I'm the Director of Ministries here at the Gloucester campus, and I am really grateful for the opportunity to get to open up God's Word with you this morning. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and open up with me to John chapter 11, the Gospel of John chapter 11. My assignment this morning in wrapping up our series, Christ-Centered Emotions, is the emotion of grief, and in particular, loss. And now grief is something that all of us have to face at one point or another. It's a consequence of living in a fallen and in a broken world. The consequence of sin is death, and the consequence of death is grief. And our text this morning addresses both. But before we jump in, I wanted to take just a moment to help us understand what grief is. The dictionary defines grief as a deep and poignant distress caused by or if by bereavement. We most commonly associate grief with death, But we can grieve over many different things. We can grieve the loss of a loved one. We can grieve a falling out with a family member. We can grieve a divorce. We can grieve an injustice done to us or done to someone that we love. We can grieve a sickness or some sort of disease or really any consequence of living in a post-Genesis 3 world. There are various degrees of grief ranging from slightly upset to absolutely devastated. Different kinds of people grieve differently. Some people are are loud and expressive, while others are more subdued and reflective. Some people go through different stages of grief. Some people grieve longer than others. The reality is that this is a deep and a multifaceted topic that we could probably spend weeks unpacking. But what I would like to do this morning is open up the scriptures and show you that there is hope in the midst of grief. Indeed, there is a Christ-centered hope that nothing in this world can take from us. We believe that the scriptures are sufficient for all matters of life and godliness. So they are sufficient for us even in the midst of unbelievable grief. So it's my prayer this morning that this message will be an encouragement to you, maybe if you're walking through that right now. One thing that I've learned ever since coming on staff at a church, it's just unbelievable the things that people go through the baggage that people carry in on a Sunday morning. It's such a heartbreaking thing. So I know there are likely people here this morning for whom this isn't just an abstract conversation, but this is a reality. So I really hope that I can show you that Jesus Christ is indeed the only hope especially in the midst of grief. I hope this is a help to those of you who are walking alongside a friend or a family member who's grieving so that you can know how to encourage them. And for the rest of us, maybe if you're not going through a season of grief right now, let me tell you, it'll come. Just keep living. We live in a broken world where pain is inevitable, unfortunately. So let me give you the main point of my sermon before we even start this morning. Only Christ can give you true hope in the midst of grief. The secular world has absolutely nothing to offer a grieving person. If there's no God and this life is all there is, then that's it. There's no hope. There's no hope. But even if we maybe sort of vaguely believe in God or maybe vaguely believe that there might be an afterlife, there's still no hope there. Because how do you know? There's no real hope. Like I said, only Jesus Christ can give you real hope in the midst of grief. And I'd like to give you three reasons why this morning. Indeed, three things that I call the pillars of Christ-censored hope. And here they are. God has a purpose for our grief. Christ is with us in our grief. And Christ has defeated death. With that in mind, let's take a look at John chapter 11, starting in verse 1. Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. He stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Then after this, he said to his disciples, let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you and you were going there again? Jesus answered, are there not 12 hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. After saying these things, he said to them, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he will recover. Now Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought that he meant taking rest and sleep. So then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died. And for your sake, I am glad that I was not there so that you may believe, but let us go to him. The first pillar of Christ-centered hope is God's purpose for our grief. God's purpose for our grief. The pain and suffering that causes us to grieve is not random. It's not meaningless. But it is under the control of a loving, wise, sovereign, and good God. When we are grieving, often the last thing that we want to hear is, God has a plan. Some of you maybe have been going through grief, you've had some bad news, and maybe some well-intentioned Christian came to you and said, slapped you on the back and said, all right, it's okay, God has a plan, Romans eight twenty-eight, and then went on with their day. And while that's probably not the most tactful thing to do in that moment, it's true. God really does have a plan, and he really does have a purpose, and he really is working all things together for good. So let's take a closer look at the text this morning and see about God's purpose for grief. First, being a Christian doesn't make me immune to grief. Mary, Martha, and Lazarus all had a close relationship with Jesus. In fact, we get hints from this text and others that Jesus spent a lot of time with them, that they were his good friends. This is the same Mary and Martha from the story in Luke chapter 10. Remember when Mary is sitting at Jesus' feet and Martha is running around serving? It's the same people. Jesus had a close relationship with them. And yet this tragedy still happens. We can often slip into thinking that God owes us a good life if we are faithful to him. We can start to think if we are living the way that we are supposed to live, then we should be immune to bad things happening. And even if we don't actually say that, it really comes out when something bad happens. It comes out when we're shocked and confused and surprised when something happens. But church, if we really understand the reality of sin, the brokenness of the world, and the craftiness of Satan, then perhaps we should be surprised when good things happen. Being a Christian doesn't make me immune to grief, and maybe this feels like a, a cold glass of water splashed in the face to wake you up to start this sermon this morning, but what I'm trying to do is to pop that bubble that we sometimes put ourselves in, where we think, I'm a, being a Christian makes me immune to grief. And there's a reason why I think we can start to think that way. You see, there is a teaching in the American church, I would even call it a heresy, that basically says if you have enough faith, then God is always obligated to make you rich, to make you healthy, to make you successful. And if any of those things don't happen, it's your fault because you didn't have enough faith. And underneath this teaching, is a view of God that essentially makes him into a genie. A view of God that says, if I do my part, you are obligated to do this for me. And now, of course, I think this teaching is unbiblical, and it's dangerous, and we need to avoid it. But the reason I'm bringing it up in a sermon on grief is this. When we start to think that way, we are totally blindsided when tragedy comes. We are totally blindsided. And I've known many people who have thought that way. And they've left the faith when something bad happens because their conception of God has been shattered. But the truth is that God often allows painful circumstances in our lives for a reason. They're never random. They're never capricious. God isn't sitting up in heaven sending lightning bolts down when we get on his nerves. But he does it with a purpose. He has a reason. And that leads us to our next point this morning. God allows pain in our lives because he loves us. And some of you might think that's a typo, right? Shouldn't it say even though he loves us? Well, listen, I wouldn't dare make such an audacious claim like that about God unless it was in the text. I don't write the mail. I just deliver it, right? So let's look again at John 11, verse 5. Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister And Lazarus. So, when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer. The word there, so, is so important. It's often translated, the Greek word's often translated as therefore. What does that mean? It means that the reason Jesus stayed two days longer in the place where he was is because he loved them. Church, do you realize that Jesus had the complete ability to heal Lazarus had he chose to? He could have gone there. And listen, he didn't even have to go there. Do you remember the story of the centurion and his servant in Luke chapter 7? All he had to do was speak the word and miles away, this man was healed. Jesus could have healed Lazarus and prevented his death and prevented this horrible tragedy coming on this family, but he chose not to. Why? The text tells us because he loved them. Let's be honest, church. That's a hard pill for us to swallow. That's a hard pill for us to swallow, that God allowed a tragedy into this family's life because he loved them. We have a hard time understanding how love and suffering can coexist. The idea of how could a loving God let evil exist, let bad things happen. In philosophy, that's been referred to as the problem of evil or the problem of pain. It has plagued the minds of philosophers for millennia. How could a good and loving and all-powerful God let evil exist? Rabbi Harold Kushner, a popular Jewish author, he once wrote a book called When Bad Things Happen to Good People. Now, I take issue with the title, When Bad Things Happen to Good People. That only happened once. It's called The Cross. But anyways... The main idea of this book was that because evil exists, God cannot be both loving and all-powerful. If evil exists and God is loving, then he can't be all-powerful because if he was all-powerful, he'd stop it. And if evil exists and God is all-powerful, then he can't be loving because if he was loving, he would stop it. So after laying this case out, Rabbi Kushner came to the conclusion that therefore God must not be all-powerful. God must not be sovereign. He must not be in control. And I think this is really, he's trying to get God off the hook. He's trying to make God appear more loving. But in his attempt to make God seem more loving and really to drag God down to our level so that we can understand him, what he has really done is stripped God of his ability to do anything about evil. Listen, it's no comfort to those who are suffering to tell them that God is incompetent. When we are in the dark night of our souls, we need a big God. We need a God who is loving and sovereign and all-powerful and always present with us. You see Jesus knew that Lazarus was going to die and he let it happen, not because he was helpless, but because he had a purpose. Romans 8:28 This beautiful verse that many of you have memorized, right? And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. Jesus had a purpose in allowing this pain. What was it? It was the revelation of the glory of God. Jesus said, this illness does not lead to death, but it is for the glory of God. Jesus said to his disciples, Lazarus has died. You ready for this? And I am glad that I wasn't there so that through it, you might believe. John Piper once wrote, love is doing what you have to do to bring people to the greatest knowledge and enjoyment of the glory of God. Jesus let Lazarus die. And he died for that. But the reason for suffering in our lives is rarely as clear as the reason for the suffering in Mary and Martha and Lazarus's life. And the number one question that comes to our minds in the midst of grief is, why? God, why would you let this happen to me? My God, my God, Why? This leads us to our last point about God's purpose in our grief. God rarely answers our suffering with why, but always answers with who. Do you remember the story of Job in the Old Testament? Job was a righteous and a God-fearing man. He had a large family and many possessions. And Satan claimed that Job only followed God because God protected him. And so to test his faith, God allowed, that's important, God allowed Satan to take away his money, his stuff, his kids, and even his health to the point where he was broke and near death. Then after a very long conversation with his knuckleheaded friends, God shows up and we get four chapters of God's response to Job. And what he says is amazing. And also what he doesn't say is amazing because you see, God never tells Job why. Why? He never mentions the conversation with Satan. He never mentions the testing of his faith. He never tells him why, but he reveals himself to Job. And that's enough. And that's enough. He said, where were you, Job, when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. When I placed the stars in the sky and called them out by name, where were you? You see, maybe there's someone here this morning going through something terrible. And I don't want to minimize that. And you've been asking God why. But listen, we don't need to know why. We need to know who. We need to know that our God is loving and all-powerful and completely sovereign. There's nothing that's out of his hands, that he loves us, that he has a purpose for us, and he has a purpose even for our unbelievable grief. C.S. Lewis, himself no stranger to grief, once wrote, I know now, Lord, why you utter no answer. You are the answer. The second pillar of Christ-centered hope in the midst of grief is Christ's presence in our grief. Let's keep going in our story. Verse 20. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him, but Mary remained remained seated in the house. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, yes, Lord. I believe that you are the Christ, the son of God, who is coming into the world. In the midst of our grief, Jesus is with us. And our text shows us two ways that he is with us. First, Jesus is present with truth. He's present with truth. In this conversation with Martha, Jesus presents her with the truth and asks her to believe in him. You see, Martha already had the right doctrine. Based on texts from the Old Testament, such as Daniel chapter 12, the first century Jews believed in a resurrection at the end of the age, which is true. So when Jesus told her that Lazarus was going to rise again, she understood it the same way you would understand it if I came to a funeral of a loved one and I said, you're going to see them again one day right? It's this future thing. It's, it's a nice sentiment. It's a nice thought. I'm going to see them again, but, but that's it. She was just looking to the future. But Jesus was pushing her not just to believe in the right doctrine, but to believe in the right person. He said to her, Martha, you believe in the resurrection generally, and that's true, but I am the resurrection You believe that I have the ability to give and sustain life. And that's true. But I am life itself. And anyone who believes in me, though he will one day die physically, never really are going to die. And then he looked her in the eyes and he said, do you believe this? Man, how I wish I could go around this room this morning and ask every one of you, do you believe this? Because this is what it is all about, church. This is eternal life, to know Jesus Christ, to know that he is the resurrection and the life. Do you believe this? There is no life apart from Jesus, none. There is no abundant life. There is no eternal life. It's all found in him. And in the midst of grief, it's so important for us to cling to Christ, to cling to the truth of who he is So many people that I've known have fallen away from the faith because of a season of grief. This is a really prominent tactic of the enemy. He uses grief to try to pull us away from the truth of Christ. That's why it's so important when we're going through a difficult season to cling to Christ, to daily feast on Christ and his word and in prayer, to be in community, to be in corporate worship as a means of grounding us in the truth of who Christ is. In the midst of grief, Christ is present with truth. Next, Jesus is with us with tears. He is present with tears. Verse 32. Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. When Martha and Mary came to Jesus, do you notice that they both said the exact same thing? They both said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But we get two very different responses from Jesus. To Martha, he preaches the gospel. He gives her the truth. But to Mary... He breaks down and weeps. One thing we can take away from that is that Jesus is the wonderful counselor. And in the midst of your grief, when you bring it to Jesus, he knows exactly what you need. John eleven thirty five. 35, Jesus wept. This is the shortest verse in the entire Bible and maybe the most profound. What always amazes me about this verse is that Jesus knew full well what he was getting ready to do. He knew that 10 minutes later, this weeping crowd was going to be rejoicing and hailing him as a hero. This is how I know the Bible is inspired, because if it were me, I would have been like, quit your crying and watch this. But he didn't do that. He entered into their grief. He entered into it. Jesus' weeping always reminds me of my favorite part of The Magician's Nephew, the first book in C.S. Lewis's Chronicles of Narnia. Any of you ever read the Narnia books? A couple of you? They're amazing books. The rest of you need to go home and read them. But in this first book, really the prequel to The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, the main character, Diggory, is distressed because his mother is deathly ill. And for those of you who aren't familiar with the Narnia world, Aslan the lion is like the Jesus figure in this universe. And I wanted to read you the following conversation between Diggory and Aslan. Diggory said, but please, please, won't you? Can't you give you something that will cure mother? Up till then, he had been looking at the lion's great feet and the huge claws on them. Now, in his despair, he looked up at its face. What he saw surprised him as much as anything in his whole life. For the tawny face was bent down near his own, and wonder of wonders, Great, shining tears stood in the lion's eyes. They were such big, bright tears compared with Diggory's own that for a moment, he felt as if the lion must have been really sorrier about his mother than he was himself. My son, my son, Aslan said, I know, grief is great. One of the most amazing things about the tears of Jesus is that he understands our pain. He enters into our grief. When I'm meeting with someone who's going through something horrible that I can't personally relate to, it feels really insensitive to say, I know. Aslan looked Diggory in the eyes and said, I know. And listen to me, in the midst of your grief, Jesus can look at you in the eyes and say, I know. Why? Because the eternal son of God took upon himself a human nature and lived a full life, experiencing the full range of human experience, yet without sin. Some of my favorite verses in the whole Bible, Bible, Hebrews chapter four. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Jesus, the son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Church, we don't have a Savior that is unable to sympathize with us in our weaknesses, no matter what you are going through or have gone through or will go through, Jesus knows. Have you ever been poor? So was Jesus. He said in Luke nine fifty eight that the son of man has no place to lay his head. Have you ever been hungry? So was Jesus. He fasted for 40 days. Have you ever been tired? So was Jesus. He would heal and teach all day and then pray all night. Have you ever been stressed out? So was Jesus so much so that he sweat drops of blood. Have you ever been betrayed by a best friend? So was Jesus. Remember Judas? Remember Peter? Have you ever been hated? So was Jesus. His own hometown tried to throw him off a cliff. Have you ever experienced the death of a loved one? So was Jesus. His name was Lazarus. Have you ever experienced intense physical pain? So was Jesus. Look at the cross. Lastly, have you ever felt rejected and abandoned by God? So is Jesus. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But there's a difference on this one. You see, you might have felt forsaken by God, but we know that God says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. But Jesus really was forsaken. He was rejected so that we could be accepted. He was cast out so that we could be brought near. And in the midst of all of this, Christians can say something that followers of every other religion cannot say. You ready? Our God knows what it's like to bleed. He knows what it's like to cry and be stressed out and angry, yet without sin. The perfect God became the perfect man and went through everything that you have gone through. So when you bring your problems to Jesus, you're talking to someone who knows, who knows what it's like. He knows. In Hebrews 4.16, he invites us to come to him. He says, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace. Man, some of you need to go to the throne of grace this morning. Bring it to Jesus. I read yesterday about Anne Steele, a hymnist from the 18th century, who knew what it was like to bring her grief to Jesus. When she was three years old, Anne's mother died. When she was young, she had a terrible injury that that resulted in her being an invalid for the rest of her life. The day before her wedding, when she was 21 years old, her fiancé drowned. horrible, tragic experience. Yet in the midst of that, she brought it to Jesus. She came to the throne of grace, and this is one of her hymns. Dear refuge of my weary soul, on thee when sorrows rise, on thee when waves of trouble roll, my fainting hope relies. To thee I tell each rising grief, for thou alone can heal. Thy word can bring a sweet relief for every pain I feel. Hast thou not bid me seek thy face, and shall I seek in vain? And can the ear of sovereign grace be deaf when I complain? No, still the ear of sovereign grace attends the mourner's prayer. Oh, may I ever find access to breathe my sorrows there. Psalm 34, 18. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted, and he saves the crushed in spirit. So bring it to Jesus this morning. Whatever grief you have, whatever sorrows you have, bring it to the throne of grace. But there's one more pillar of Christ centered hope, and that's this Christ's victory over death. Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, Take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, He cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. Church, death is not final for those who believe in Jesus. Death is not final. By the power of his authoritative word, Jesus walked up to the tomb and commanded Lazarus to rise from the dead. You see, earlier in the gospel of John in chapter five, Jesus said, truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the son of God and those who hear will live. The hour was now here indeed. And church, let me tell you something amazing. For those of us who believe in Jesus, the same voice that walked up to that tomb and said, Lazarus, come forth, will call you out of your grave one day too. The same voice. Death is not final. And by the way, this is why the resurrection of Christ that we just celebrated at Easter is so important. How do we know that we're going to be raised from the dead one day? Because Christ has been raised And if you are united to him by faith, you will be raised one day too. We are the body of Christ. If the head has been raised, the body's not staying in the ground. We will be raised because Christ has been raised. If you are here this morning and you don't have a relationship with Christ, man, let me tell you. Jesus is the resurrection and the life. There's no life apart from him. There's no abundant life, no meaning, no purpose in this life apart from him. And there is no eternal life in the future apart from him. He is the way, he is the truth, and he is the life. Trust in him. Turn from your sins, trust in Christ. He's the only way. He's the resurrection and the life. But for those of us who know Christ, we know that because he has defeated death, we grieve differently than the rest of the world. We grieve with hope. First Thessalonians 4. For we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. There are two mistakes we can make when grieving. The first is try to stoically repress our grief and paint on a smile when on the inside we're really dying. The second is to grieve hopelessly, to grieve in such a way that communicates to the world around us that we have lost everything. But the Christian can grieve deeply, can feel those those painful emotions deeply, and yet do it with hope and with confidence. Why? Because Jesus has defeated death. And one day he's coming back again, and he's going to get rid of sin and death once and for all. So the Christian answer is not suck it up. And it's also not grieve in such a way that communicates that you've lost everything, because if you have Christ, you have never lost everything. We can grieve but we grieve with hope. We grieve with hope because Jesus is going to come again and make all things new. He is going to come again and get rid of every ounce of evil, of sin, of pain, of cancer, of death, of everything. It's all going to be gone forever. And we are going to live with him in a renewed and restored earth forever and ever. For us Christians, when I read these next few verses that I'm about to read, I hope it just causes a stirring in your heart, a longing for that day. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, a new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. I am making all things new. All things new, everything. Every ounce of sin, of death, of evil will be gone forever. The amazing thing about the gospel is that when Jesus returns, he can get rid of evil without getting rid of us. Because he has taken our sin upon himself, paid the punishment for it, and risen victoriously from the dead so that all who trust in him will never taste death. So to wrap up this morning, I wanted to read a quote from D.L. Moody, the famous evangelist from the 19th century. He said, Someday you will read in the papers that D.L. Moody of East Northfield is dead. Don't you believe a word of it? At that moment, I shall be more alive than I am now. I shall have gone up higher, that is, out of this old clay tenement, into a house that is immortal a body that, sin, that death cannot touch, that sin cannot taint, a body fashioned like unto his glorious body. I was born of the flesh in 1837. I was born of the spirit in 1856. That which is born of the flesh may die. That which is born of the spirit will live forever. Church, we grieve with hope. We have an unshakable imperishable, Christ-centered hope that nothing in this world can take from us. Absolutely nothing. What shall separate us from the love of Christ? Nothing. Absolutely nothing. It is my prayer that we will cling to Christ even in the midst of unbelievable grief and find in him the strength to persevere until that day when he returns to make all things new. Would you pray with me? Lord, we long for that day. We long for that day when our faith becomes sight, when our prayer becomes praise. Lord, we grieve in this world. There's so much pain, there's so much suffering, Lord, so much loss, that can be hard hard to even fathom. But Lord, we know that you have a purpose, that you have a plan, that you're with us in our grief, that you are going to fix everything one day. So Lord Jesus, our hope and our trust is in you and in you alone. Help us as we go out of here this morning, Lord. Help Help us to know what it means to grieve with hope, to grieve with hope knowing that you are sovereign, that you are good, that you are going to make all things new. Lord, we love you and we praise you. And we pray these things in Jesus' precious name.